This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. We are not yet out of the global pandemic, and yet parts of our world continue to find their way back. Reopening, uncovering and tackling problems, finding solutions, looking forward and sometimes even looking back for some guidance, as one of our guests this week did specifically to 1984. We'll have more on the glory days later on. Coming up, though, this hour, we are going to blow your mind truly, with a device that's looking to read your mind. Also, the Bitcoin Slayer is back about a planned stock sale of up to $1 billion. We're talking about Michael Saylor. He's founder and CEO of MicroStrategy. We'll hear from him shortly. And we're also going to talk to the individual who brought up the club scene back in the 1970s. He changed the hotel industry. He is now rebooting his own creation, Ian Schrager. He will be with us to talk about hospitality coming back. All of that to come, we begin with this week's cover story. Airbnb spends millions of dollars to make nightmares go away. This story revealing little-known details on a company that's become revered for disrupting the established hospitality industry and is now a more than $90 billion market cap company. Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic and I got the story on Airbnb's safety team from Bloomberg News technology reporter Olivia Carvel, who is joined by Business Week editor Jill Weber. The real bedrock of Airbnb's business model is trust. You check into someone else's apartment, sometimes, or, or house, sometimes that person may be occupying that same space or in yeah. a different room. Um, and the whole thing that makes the, the business work is, is that you have trust in this system. And what uh, Olivia's reporting revealed was that oftentimes stays don't go well. And that could be uh, more run-of-the-mill things of like just a trashed apartment, or it could go very, very, very bad. And there have been cases um, of rape that was previously unreported that Olivia found out about, um, murders, uh, violent crimes. And when that happens, there is a safety team that Airbnb uh, has assembled around the world, um, 100 agents, that basically the worst of the worst situations end up going to that group of people. And Olivia um, basically was the one that has revealed that this team exists, that they're under mental duress for all the different types of cases that they have to deal with. And that, you know, this is a thing that um, for investors, this company is now publicly traded. People haven't known that this is a dark side of this company in quite this way. Um, so, so Olivia, how about you bring us up to speed on, on you know, how, how you went about reporting such a remarkable story? This story, really the crux of it was to understand, you know, to get inside the safety team and to really get to the bottom of what happens inside Airbnb when things go wrong. So initially when I started reporting this piece, it was about trying to find insiders at the company who would be willing to talk to me about the stress of the job and just the the process of when something happens inside a listing like a violent crime and a call comes through to the Airbnb customer service rep, what actually happens? How does the company handle it? Who does it get transferred through to? And what do they do about handling you know, public image, reputational risk, brand risk, given that Airbnb's entire business model really rests on that idea of of trust between strangers, to them, 
public image is just so crucially important to, to you know, growth and, and revenue. So Olivia, how does it work when things go wrong? And often, as Joel mentioned, horribly wrong. Right. Well, if, if a call is to come through to Airbnb related to anything concerning safety, so when I say that, I mean anything involving a child, cases of human trafficking, drug trafficking, kidnappings, hostage scenarios, sexual assaults, rape cases, murder, anything that enters that kind of like significance of a real safety crisis, it will immediately be transferred through to an internal safety team of agents. And as Joel mentioned, Airbnb has about 100 of these agents based all around the world who are trained in trauma. You know, they they specify and specialize in how to handle cases of trauma. They're taught how to deal with suicidal ideation. They're taught to, you know, how to, how to help talk with a sexual assault survivor and the best way to support her in that moment. And um, for these safety agents, it's all about doing what they can to protect the individual in crisis. And also they do have a dual role to protect the company's public image at the same time. Joel referred to the duress that these safety agents experience. What is the toll it takes on them and, and how do they deal with it? A lot of the safety agents I talked to um, expressed vicarious trauma. They say that they suffer from PTSD from the job. I mean, they willingly walk into it. They, they want to do this kind of trauma work. And I think it takes a certain person who's attracted to this particular role. A lot of them comes from backgrounds of emergency services work or even from the military. They've, um, you know, as I said, gone through a lot of trauma-based care training. They have counsellors on site to help this team. They have specialised cool-down rooms with dimmed lighting to help them answer those really tough calls. And for these agents, you know, when you handle a case of an individual who has been um, assaulted, raped, who has, you know, lost a loved one, maybe lost a child in a listing, you form a bond with the individual over the phone. And a lot of these safety agents talked about cases where they're still in touch with those families years after the crime has happened. You know, it stays with them. One safety agent I talked to handled a case of a missing person who just disappeared from a listing. And three years after that occurred, he was still Googling that individual's name to see if there was, you know, if they were ever found. That was this week's cover story with Bloomberg News technology reporter Olivia Carvel, who was joined by Business Week editor Joel Weber. Coming up, the Bitcoin slayer who is selling shares to maybe, just maybe, buy more Bitcoin. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So this week, U.S. regulators have once again punted their decision on whether to approve a Bitcoin ETF. The SEC saying that it will seek more public comment. It's not the first time this year that the SEC has delayed giving an answer to the legions of crypto advocates who are pushing for a way to trade the largest cryptocurrency in an exchange-traded fund format and possibly catapult the world's most valuable digital token into the mainstream among institutional investors. While MicroStrategy is definitely keeping an eye on this, it's 
it's the software developer that's turning into a corporate shell for Bitcoin purchases that said just this week that it plans to sell up to $1 billion of new equity, proceeds of which can be used to buy Bitcoin. Michael Saylor is chairman, CEO, and founder of MicroStrategy. He's sometimes referred to as the Bitcoin slayer, and his company as the face of institutional crypto adoption. And we were joined by Mike McClone, commodity analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I think this is like the the year when they invented electricity and every company and every government on earth needs to figure out what does electricity mean to my country? And I figure it'll take a decade of education. I mean, the facts are right now, if you buy uh, the modern Bitcoin miner, uh, you can generate about 35 to 40 cents a kilowatt hour off of any intermittent energy source or stranded energy source, I mean, no matter where it is on Earth. And that's four times better than, than uh, you know, the developed world high-end commercial energy rate. So uh, as people figure that out, I think anybody that's got uh, a volcano or a, a waterfall or a wind farm away from a big city is thinking, this is the solution to my energy problem. It's, and the key fact I find very positive forward looking is the ability to kind of solve the problem of gas flaring. I, the quote I heard up in Canada, there might be 10,000 wells that are just leaking methane gas or methane, as they say in London. And this is a, a way to help solve that. And I, it seems to me, well, that's a lot of stranded resources that can be put to use. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people that understand Bitcoin, they realize that Bitcoin is recycling wasted energy. It's rescuing stranded energy and it's avoiding capital destruction. I actually have a friend that owns a bunch of natural gas fields. And, and if you've got a situation where you can't uh, immediately monetize a natural gas, it's an awful, awful choice you have to make, a Hobson's choice. You're either flaring it, which is awful for the environment, or you shut the well in, and it's destruction of the capital. It's, it's horrifically bad. And Bitcoin, what do you need to solve it? You need to be able to monetize that energy uh, wherever it is, and you need to do it with like low bandwidth at any scale. And Bitcoin mining is, Bitcoin mining is probably 20 times more energy efficient than a Google data center or a Netflix data center for monetizing energy. So it's a gift just sitting out there for people that have a problem with regard to stranded energy or intermittent energy where they, well, they just waste it and they don't know what to do about why it. Is the, the solution. Why is the narrative so different, though, then? And maybe I'm just a little naive and a little stupid when it comes to this. But why is the narrative so differently when it comes to the impact of uh, mining crypto on the environment? You're saying why is there sometimes a negative environmental narrative around crypto? Correct. Well, I think it's because it's the first year in the decade when Bitcoin is emerging as an issue. It's the most disruptive technology in the world for money, and it's the most disruptive technology in the world for energy. And if you imagine uh, the first year we invented electricity, and if you went and put a microphone in front of every mayor, every governor, every politician, every senator, every CEO, and every journalist and said, what do you think about this? And you gave them uh, like five minutes to respond and they could do an hour of research, you would get a wide variety of answers. You know, what I say about Bitcoin is it takes you 10 hours to scratch the surface, 100 hours to have an informed opinion, 1,000 hours to have an intelligent opinion, and 10,000 hours to understand it. 
And everybody, when you ask the CEO of General Motors, okay, what do you think about Bitcoin? And they've studied it for an hour. Or you ask the governor or the mayor or, or whomever it is or a journalist, everybody has to have an opinion because they're being forced. It's in their face. Right. Like I watch well, these poor CEOs go on television and they ask them all, are you, what do you think about Bitcoin? What do you think about Bitcoin? Bitcoin, 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 Bitcoin. And they have to answer. But the truth is they don't have a thousand hours to figure out what the answer is. So the knee-jerk reaction is either, A, it seems so good, it's too good to be true. Or the other answer is, all I know is it uses well, a lot of energy. Michael, talk to me about the plan to sell as much as a billion dollars in shares. You also did uh, close a sale of junk bonds. Is it all about buying Bitcoin? Is that what the proceeds are for? You know, it's a standing program that's good over the course of, of several years. And it gives us the option, if the market conditions are correct, to sell equity uh, from time to time. We have a standing share buyback program, too, that gives us the option to buy the shares back. Mm -hmm. So generally, our policy is do accretive financings. If we see an opportunity to sell debt or equity that's accreted to the rest of the security holders, we would do that. So that's a yes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I can't really say it when it gets to that specific question. All right, I'm just going to make a general assumption. All right, Mike McClone, you take it. Well, um, Michael, I, I want to ask you a key thing about how do you think history is going to look at you? Because I view you as a good example of, the, of a bastion of free market capitalism adopting this new digitalized uh, internet money or digital uh, currency versus China. It's cracking down, and China's mm-hmm. that repressive... Um, society that doesn't even allow Winnie the Pooh. I mean, where do you think this is going to end? Because I have a sense you're making a place in history here. I think that Bitcoin is, uh, it's America, it's the American dream in cyberspace. People came to America for property and for freedom hundreds of years ago because they couldn't get those in Europe. And I think there's a general sentiment around the world of frustration that people are frustrated with regard to their property rights and their freedoms and and uh bitcoin is the highest form of property right and if you don't have property in the third world a developing nation then bitcoin's your only hope and if you have property in the first world and in u.s and europe and you're watching it get debased as the currency weakens then bitcoin you know is your way uh to get some control over your property rights and so i think we're the first public company that took a serious position uh, it's a paradigm shift, and I think everybody else is gradually coming to realize that it's a pretty good idea. It'll take a decade, I think, before the entire world comes to accommodation to understand what this really means for civilization. That's Michael Saylor, CEO and founder of MicroStrategy, along with our own Mike McClone of Bloomberg Intelligence. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, get ready to blow your mind. Thanks to the Colonel Helmet, this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Trending on social media this week, you might have noticed a Bloomberg tweet about a Business Week story on a company called Kernel that will begin sending dozens of customers across the United States a $50,000 helmet that can, uh, kind of crudely speaking, 
read their mind. That helmet weighs a couple of pounds. It contains nests of sensors and other electronics that measure and analyze a brain's electrical impulses and blood flow at the speed of thought, providing a window into how the organ responds to the world. Bloomberg Businessweek feature writer and New York Times bestselling author Ashley Vance, he's been tracking this company for a few years. Ashley is also host of Hello World. He's also author of Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future. We caught up with Ashley along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber to talk about this story in this week's magazine. So Ashley, who are we talking about and what does this brain scanning helmet that he's developed do? There's a guy named Brian Johnson who's who's kind of the main character of the story. Uh, he's not super well known, but he is very rich. He, he sold a company called Braintree to PayPal for several hundred million dollars a few years ago. And then he took all that money and started this new company called Kernel, which is, like you said, they've built these helmets that uh, can peer through your skull, see all the electrical activity, see all the blood flow, and basically watch your neurons fire in real time. And, And, you know, the big breakthrough really is um, we have machines that do some of the stuff like fMRI machines and MEGs and things that you would find at a hospital or a research center and you know he's found a way to boil all this down into a helmet that anybody could wear I'm gonna put this on and what's it gonna do for me exactly <laughs> yeah I mean there's a few things going on his basic his kind of driving thesis is this idea that for mental health, if you went to the doctor and you had you were worried about your heart, they would run all these tests on you, you know, obviously do some blood work. And, and we just don't have anything like that for the brain. And so he wants, uh, you know, partly because these things have been expensive and, and hard to use. We just don't have much data on the brain. And so he wants to make these affordable enough that thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even millions of people would be using these machines to see their brain activity as they go through their day, as they try to recover from an illness like a stroke or Parkinson's disease, and that we would just learn a lot more about how the mind works. Well, and that's the point, Ashley, right? I mean, we know so much, we do know a lot about the body. We do know a fair amount about the brain, but there is so much that is unknown. And he thinks about it kind of juxtaposed against artificial intelligence too. You know, he started this company I've been following it for a few years. He really started when he, he thought that AI was getting so powerful that that humans would not stand a chance against it and that our only hope was to kind of, you know, merge with machines and create this brain-machine interface. It's a way that, that really you could add computing horsepower to your own brain and, and vice versa. So that that's kind of the root of all this. Over time, Brian... He's an interesting character. He's really into kind of the quantified self movement. He he has all these tests done on, on his body, and he's very particular about how much he sleeps and what he eats and how he exercises and all this stuff. And so, um, you know, the other part of this is like for him on this personal journey is that he, he wants to know everything about himself, and the brain was like this last bit that he couldn't measure or understand. Can we talk about his abs? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe your abs? Yeah. How do your abs compare with his abs? <laughs> when I when I started this story, I mean, so Brian and I are almost exactly the same age. We're both with the calendar says we're both forty three, about to turn forty four, and and you know we probably looked like somewhat similar three years ago when I first started talking to him and, and I've gone, you know, one way or I've stayed sort of the same. And this guy has gotten totally ripped. I mean, he, he eats one meal a day at, at 
very early in the morning. He eats like 2,300 calories in this one go and picks out all the food and he, he does his workout in the morning. And, you know, to the extent you believe in all this stuff, he, 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 there's different ways you can kind of measure your, your biological age. And, you know, so he's gone from 43 to the doctors say he's got like the body basically of like a 25 year old. Uh, yeah. Okay. I could go for that. <laughs> uh, Forget the helmet. I want that. Right. So how, does, does he, he's, he has snorted stem cells. Does that help? I've seen him snort snort stem cells before. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he goes to this wellness clinic in Colorado, this Grossman Wellness Center, and um, they, like, take out some of your blood and they spin it in a centrifuge and get the plasma, and then some kind of magic happens to the plasma that turns it into these stem cells. And the doctor, I saw him do it. He snorted them right up his, his nose. It's supposed to improve your memory, your uh, kind of attitude, your your general disposition and towards life. And uh, yeah. he said it worked. He did it quite a few times, although he stopped doing it now. That was feature writer Ashley Vance, along with the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, he brought us Studio 54 and the Boutique Hotel. What does Ian Schrager have to say about the hospitality industry now? This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, check it out, everyone. If you walk around New York City, you can tell it has reopened. We see it more and more each day. The broader U.S. is increasingly moving toward a post-pandemic life. The rest of the world also moving forward, but at an uneven pace with COVID still taking a heavy toll. One area that took an incredibly hard hit during the health crisis, hotels and hospitality. And we've leaned on the next guest to tell us how things were going and what happens next. He's been involved in the hospitality industry for five decades, from Studio 54 and Palladium nightclubs back in the 1970s, to challenging and upending the hotel industry with the introduction and creation of the boutique hotel in the 1980s. He created the public brand, and he did a reboot before reopening from the coronavirus just recently. Let's get more from Ian Schrager, hotelier and founder and chairman of the Ian Schrager Company. I think people uh, who uh, live, live in New York City uh, and around the world are ready to go mad. And they're just really <laughs> looking for a place, a platform you know, to do that. I think uh, uh, in New York in particular, we're in a very funny situation. Uh, but I think uh, that... Uh, all the signs are right. The demand is definitely there. It'll take a little while to ramp up. I can't tell exactly how fast that'll be, but I am mm-hmm. confident it will ramp up. Labor has been an issue. Uh, I think that uh, uh, there's a scarcity of uh, the labor pool, and I think until the benefits stop, uh, until the support that the government has rightly been giving to everybody, mm-hmm. uh, uh, people will have to go back to work, and they will soon. Well, it's interesting that you say that because when we look at the labor statistics, you know, at those monthly jobs reports and job numbers, it tends to be the hospitality industry where you are seeing the big moves up in terms of hiring. So, you know, I do wonder whether or not it really is benefits that are holding people back. It does look like a lot of people who work in that industry are coming back, but you're saying that's not the case. Well, they're not coming back yet. Mm. We can't keep pace with the demand. Okay. Uh, the demand is out there, uh, but uh, the labor supply is uh, is uh, very very restricted. Uh, and I think you know you have to remember the hotel industry shut down a year ago, right? And so everybody was uh, 
kind of laid off and not working. So uh, they were building on a base of zero. So that's why they may be having a uh, bigger employment gain. But, you know, we, we, the labor pool, there's a real shortage here. And uh, I, I, I don't look at it as a, as a paradigm shift. Uh, you know, I think, uh, but uh, there is a labor shortage. And uh, I think everybody, restaurants can't even open yet because they can't find the labor. So are you having to pay to pay more, Ian, to get workers to come back? Is that is that something that's actually helping you get workers, the needed workers that uh, are necessary? We are offering higher pay, mm. but it's not always very convincing. You know, people are able to insist on the benefits that they have received uh, and are continuing to receive. Uh, and when the, the, the minute that that... that uh, completely diminishes, uh, people will be obliged to come back to work, period. It's kind of very simple as far as I'm concerned. Well, is that inability to get the workers maybe you need, is that slowing your ability to come back as strongly as you would like? Is that holding you back in terms of meeting the demand at uh, your properties? Yes, it is. Mm. We have to to restrict, uh, like we have a, a lot of restaurants, a lot of new restaurants in public. And, uh, mm-hmm. like, I couldn't do the normal opening that I usually do, which is like a day of the locusts. Uh, you know, I had to be restricted because uh, mm. we didn't have the staff to be able to execute uh, as, as well as we, we want to execute. So we had to cut back. And we had to come up with a new playbook. Uh, and I think restaurants throughout New York, uh, I, I know, uh, uh, having to... Uh, be restrictive on how much, how, 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 how fast it can open. Ian, what do you want our audience, what do you want the world at large to kind of understand when it comes to the hotel and hospitality industry right now after the, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 months that we've just uh, endured? Uh, I think uh, the industry is alive and well. It took a real shot. Uh, it shut down for almost a year. There were, uh, it was tough. Uh, we had to uh, survive a lot of shots. Uh, uh, they were taking care of your employees and, and uh, fulfilling your financial responsibilities and obligations. But I think it is alive and well, and it is coming back. Uh, and uh, it'll come back as strong as it ever was. And and, and if I, what I think is, is that every time we go through a recession, uh, we always recover and we always exceed the previous highs that we've had. And I expect the same to happen now. And sometimes we learn a few things along the way. And I do wonder, the past year, we've all done a lot of soul searching and maybe rethinking. And, and you've done a little bit of a reboot on public. Tell us what's changed. It's uh, so funny that, uh, uh, you know, people always have a resistance to progress and trying something new. Uh, and uh, I think the, one of the funny results of the pandemic is, is that because of your health concerns, people became more open the technology uh, and using it in an effort to stay healthy and avoid contact and so on and so forth. But I just uh, wonder, uh, it takes people a while to get used to new things, but you don't mind getting your directions over your iPhone no. uh, rather than asking somebody personally. You don't mind ordering things over Amazon uh, uh, rather than dealing with a personal salesperson. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't mind getting into self-driving cars uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, you know, we uh, order takeout, right? We do menus for takeout exactly. constantly. Exactly. I think that progress, and I think everything that technology can do to make it either cheaper 
or make it even quicker and easier for you is a good thing. Uh, and I think the hotels are going to be uh, taking advantage of that. And that's a very heart of what public is about in luxury for all. Uh, it's kind of uh, uh, combining the select service um, uh, ferocious exercise and execution and providing value with the magical luxury experience to create a new genre, uh, well, uh, which is public. Well, and listen, you got, you have constantly rethought about what somebody who stays at a hotel, what, what's the experience they want? What do they want? What, you know, amenities are pointless. What doesn't matter anymore? What's the rethink in addition to, is it all about technology just kind of having a bigger role? Uh, whether it's opening your room or ordering food or what have you, is it is that the real big difference and takeaway from the past year? Well, it's uh, luxury needs an update. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs a revision. Uh, there is a lot more access to wealth than have been in prior years. We've been dealing with the same criteria for luxury for the last few hundred years, and it needs to be updated the way everything else needs to be updated. People just don't care about same things they cared about today. And it's the same, the ultimate luxury to me is freedom of time, mm. uh, being treated with dignity and humanity uh, and getting what's important and not having your coffee served in fine bone china uh, by a guy in white gloves and gold buttons uh, and waiting 45 minutes for a breakfast delivery and paying $35 for a pot of coffee. That's not luxury to me. That's pretension. Uh, and so I think we've stripped down and gotten rid of all those things that people don't care about and just focused on making them feel good. Because luxury is a state of mind. It's not a price point uh, or, or, or well, something that's been in the past. It's good to hear you say that, Ian, because I do think from some of the conversations that we've had over the last year, especially people in the restaurant space who saw their workers, a lot of them don't make a lot of money, who were just struggling to get by. Um really rethink about their model, especially some of the higher end, you know, restaurants and places. And I do wonder, you know, the inequalities, the inequities that have been shown again, not new, but we saw them again, big time over the past year, how that has kind of invaded your psyche once again. Well, it has. I mean, you can't have half the people in this country being upset and aggravated while the other half is not. There's something wrong about that. Uh, so we have mm-hmm. to rethink the way we're doing things, and uh, we have to uh, provide access uh, to the system and access to the benefits of the system. You know, to everybody, it has to be more egalitarian. You know, it has to be more democratized. And, and I think uh, that's a problem with business, yeah. and that's also a problem with society. And I think we're just responding. You know, we don't make the rules. We just respond to what we think is going on. And there's no reason you can't provide value to people without dumbing down the product and providing less. There's no reason you can't have just as good a product, right. just as sophisticated, uh, for less. And I well, think that's a new very well, way of looking at things. Well said, well said. And if I may, just to end on kind of a lighter note, my understanding is um, you, uh, public, actually hosted a party for Elon Musk and his guests. I think you opened up public for the first time in 14 months for his after party when he was on Saturday Night Live. It sounds like it was a pretty wild party. Uh, a cryptocurrency theme, I think I heard, Dogecoin, cookies and cupcakes. Um, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, love, we love Elon Musk. We love everything he stands for. Uh, we love his inventiveness, his innovativeness. 
Uh, we, we think he's having a positive effect uh, on society as a whole. So we were closed. We opened up just for him because it was a thrill for us to have him and all his guests uh, there that night. And uh, so... It was, a, it was a favorite of ours. It was a thrill for us, and we're happy to do it. That's Ian Schrager, hotelier and founder and chairman of the Ian Schrager Company, a great go-to voice on all things hospitality. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. Ahead in our next hour, sports trading cards, the 90 days in 1984 that changed sports and culture forever. Also, Juneteenth becoming an official federal holiday in the United States by way of the U.S. Congress and many others like singer, songwriter, and producer Pharrell Williams, who joined us on his efforts to get it done. Plus, how to cool down big data centers, farm fish on land, and pump up pea production. It's all in our solutions section, coming right up in the next hour of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Carol Masser. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including singer, songwriter, and producer Pharrell Williams on making Juneteenth a U.S. federal holiday. Also, the market maker, evangelist, therapist who is cashing in on priceless pieces of cardboard. Business Week calls him the king of cards. And glory days. We take you back to 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. Sports Illustrated and 60 Minutes contributor John Wertheim on his new book. First up this hour, a special solutions section in Bloomberg Business Week magazine, looking at hot data centers, fish farming on land, and popular peas. My co-host and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic and I got a roundup from the editor of the solutions section, Rebecca Penty. She joined us from our London bureau and offices. That's right. All the data that's flowing through your phone, whether it's bank statements, YouTube videos, you name it, that goes through a data center. And actually data centers consume two to 4% of the entire world's electricity. And that's because they require air conditioning to cool all of these servers that are superheated with all this um, data flowing through them. Now we take a look at a new way to cool these servers that consumes far less energy and is more effective. And that's using a liquid. So we talked to a UK company called Isotope. They're based in Sheffield, a few hours north of London. And they have a technology where they put the, the they actually put the box, their server box, into this liquid that's non-conductive to cool it down. And this saves a vast amount of water as well as electricity. And this is they're one of many startups that are in this space working with companies like Microsoft and Lenovo to find a better way to cool these data centers. Yeah, venture capital funding has really gone toward finding a solution to this. And I'm, I'm wondering what the promise is uh, economically from a business perspective if somebody can crack this nut. Yeah, I think if you think about the clients that these, these startups are servicing, it's, it's companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, all of these major companies are focused on this problem because remember, um, you know, ESG investing is becoming more and more important and companies have to worry about their environmental impact and so they're answering to investors. So I think, I think there's money in this space, particularly if one of these companies, one of these technologies becomes a real winner 
um, you know, investors could make quite a bit of money. All right, Rebecca, from chips in demand to fish in demand, we are eating an awful lot of fish globally, and that's a problem. And as a result, we're talking about now doing actually fish farming on land. Yeah, that's right. You think about diets that emphasize omega-3 fatty acids and all of the salmon that people are consuming in order to meet those dietary needs, we are eating more and more fish just as the wild populations are declining. And what that means is that aquaculture is stepping in. Seafood farming has been stepping in for years. But the problem is it's inherently dirty. The fish are kept in pens in marine environments near wild fish, near, near native species, and disease and parasites spreads to those native species even if the farmed fish don't escape because the water is flowing in and out of these pens. So for years, um, you know, what's kind of been the holy grail of aquaculture is, is, is thinking about could we raise salmon on land? And remember, these are fish in the wild that um, have epic life cycles where they spawn in, in rivers, they go, you know, they make their way to the ocean, they come back into the river to, to lay eggs again. So um, these land-based farms face extreme challenges in trying to mimic this environment, trying to make sure their power sources are sustainable, and doing it all in tanks uh, where they're trying to make sure that the fish stay alive. But actually we're nearing a potential major turning point where two companies in this space, one in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia and another near Miami, are saying that they are near profitability. Um, so there's a massive test next year. If these companies can scale up, we'll be able to find out whether this is a real solution to you know, green up our food supply. Well, speaking of our food supply, from fish to peas, because pea protein is the hot ingredient when it comes to fake meat that we've all come to, well, so many of us have come to love, but that also means supply constraints. So how is the war for fake meat leaning into pea protein, and how are they actually improving supply constraints? Yeah, that's right. So everyone, if you're an investor, you'll think about Beyond Meat and their IPO in 2019, which was you know, the, the most successful IPO since uh, 2008. Um, but you know, what that did was allow Beyond Meat to expand at a, at a rapid pace and a bunch of copycat acts followed. So you know, the main ingredient in a Beyond Meat burger is yellow pea protein. Um, it's, it's high in protein. It doesn't have a strong taste. Um, and, and it's malleable. It's really easy to turn it into fake fish, fake chicken, fake, you know, you name it, fake mm. cheese. So the food industry has gone gaga over yellow peas, and that's created a real supply crunch, uh, meaning that prices have soared. So we talked to Puris, which is um, the, the biggest supplier of yellow pea protein in the U.S., about their expansion plans and how they're handling that crunch and uh, and how they're also trying to make yellow pea protein taste better by masking the flavor with various spices and improving the processing to I love do your so. face that you're making because there is that off flavor, right? I mean, it's good for the soil pea production, right, and pea farming, but you do talk about this off flavor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The editor of the Solutions section of Bloomberg Businessweek, Rebecca Penty. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Still to come, Pharrell Williams on making Juneteenth a U.S. federal holiday. This is Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Juneteenth marks both a long, hard night of slavery and subjugation and a promise of a brighter morning to come. This is a day of profound, in my view, profound weight and profound power. A day in which we remember the moral stain, the terrible toll that slavery took on the country and continues to take. This week, President Biden signed into law the 11th National Annual Federal Holiday in the United States. We're talking about Juneteenth, also known as Emancipation Day. It's a reference to June 19, 1865. That's the day when a Union general arrived in Galveston, Texas, telling African-American slaves that the Civil War was over, that they were now free under the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been signed two years earlier, back in 1863, by President Abraham Lincoln. Many have stepped forward in support of Juneteenth. That includes singer, songwriter, producer, entrepreneur Pharrell Williams, who joined us along with Bloomberg New York Deputy Bureau Chief Shartia Brantley. Well, of course, uh, as an African-American and African diaspora, all of our DNA is excited. Uh, We're very grateful uh, to be recognized uh, on a federal level. But there's a lot of, there's there's so much more work to do. Um, I'm not sure, but I think our state was first Virginia. Um would be the first state to do it. Uh, But man, it's been a long time coming, you know, and for so long, people have debated as to whether, you know, it's an either or situation with, you know, Independence Day. But my ancestors, uh, most like everybody else who's African-American and people of color here, um, our ancestors had to fight in the war, whether it was on either side, they had to do it. Um, But they were not free. And nor were white women and nor were LGBTQIA, like essentially no one was free except our, our our white brothers at the time, you know, but this was America and America was trying to figure out what it wanted to be. And once they made that decision, um, it took a very long time for us to be uh, emancipated. And for so long, that day of emancipation uh, for us, which was a, such a joyous day, uh, we go ignored like it was something that was seen as like some sort of like divisive thing, but it's really not. It happens to be our history. And for us to be free, everybody's free. It's like we talk about liberty and our pledge. Even if we're really going to use that word, then everyone in this nation needs to be free. Pharrell, why has our history become so controversial as of late? And what does President Biden signing this into law, does it increase the much needed conversations we need to bring us all together? Because you can't move forward if you don't know where you've been. I mean, there, there are those who just don't know the history. And then there are people who know the history but don't want to hear about it. And then there are people who are, would like for other people to not know the history. And then there's a lot of people who want people to really understand the history. Are you concerned that in terms of, as you said, this was an important day, but you don't want this to be necessarily a distraction, right? There is still a lot of work to do. Sharti and I were talking before we got going uh, with you, Pharrell, is that we look around corporate boardrooms and they're still not really diverse or the C-suite isn't still really diverse. So we've had a lot of conversations again in the past year. What do you see from some of the work that you're doing or having an understanding of being a black American that what really needs to be done to make significant change so that they're, you know, we're not talking about DNI, we're actually having it done and seeing it done. 
Well, so firstly, I, 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 we have a Juneteenth pledge, um, and it would be great to have all of the Fortune 500 and, you know, uh, you know, all of the, the bigger corporations to sign in um, and make sure people have a pay holiday or at least a, like a, a skeleton day or a ghost day where they can figure out what, what they want to do with the day, but still mm-hmm. um, paid for it. They're Americans, right? And Juneteenth is now an American federal holiday. But what we're all, what I'm doing specifically as it pertains to like the disparity and the disproportionate access to education, health, uh, and healthcare, and legislation is Black Ambition. And Black Ambition is a prize that we put together. It's a five hundred one c three that we work in partnerships with the historic Black colleges and universities to find more um, Black and Latinx entrepreneurs. Now, why did we do that? Because if you look at the American pie chart, like we don't own enough things out there. Uh, where you find people in communities that own things, their children actually have great access to healthcare, education, and legislation. So in order for us to have a voice, we've got to own more things. Um, and it wasn't just Tulsa, Oklahoma that this that this happened to. It's happened many, 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 many times, right? So what we want to do is um, create a, a level playing field because we think that HBCUs have the most fertile grounds to launch such a prize and such a search. Um, and then and then once you win, the coolest part is there is mentorship. If you ask the less than 3% of the private equity and VC founders um, you know, of color, uh, what was their biggest hurdle? You'd think it was the capital. Capital's hard, but what's even harder is mentorship. It's like, you know, it's like giving a dirt, you know, a motorcycle to you know, a really excited 12 year old without training wheels or any kind of practice or any kind of um, schooling or tutelage. Mm. And so what we want to do is make sure that like when these people who have a good idea, but may not have like the business acumen, this is giving them the, the advice to make sure that like their idea actually can take off. I know that you launched uh, this initiative back in December and you're targeting, you know, startups and black and Latinx uh, entrepreneurs within consumer products and services, design, healthcare, uh, and tech. Um, I was on your website and it said that National Demo Day is scheduled for next month. How many of these uh, entrepreneurs will be making presentations? There's a lot. (laughs) There's a whole, whole, whole lot. I can also tell you, uh, the, the numbers were crazy. What I've tried to do is get out of the way. I'm a galvanizer. This, this is something that I knew needed. Um, but I'm not one of those like, you know, celebrity people who are like, man, uh, I'm like right in the middle in the front of this because one, yes, I'm an entrepreneur. But as it pertains to like training these people and mentoring these people for what it is that they need, we wanted to make sure that like um, this was in a true real partner with the HBCUs because there's a lot of talent that come out of there and they don't really get the love and the light and the shine that they deserve. So this is not like something where like I am like the griffin on the ship. Um, Mm -hmm. If anything, it's just the black ambition that is. That's Pharrell Williams. He joined us along with Bloomberg New York Deputy Bureau Chief Shartia Brantley. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, we'll introduce you to the king of cards who can tell you what a Michael Jordan rookie card is really worth. This is Bloomberg. 
Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. A story in the magazine, it's about the king of cards, and by that we mean Ken Golden and his universe of sports trading cards and sports memorabilia. Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic and I got together with Bloomberg News Entertainment reporter Lucas Shaw and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber to hear more. Ken Golden is a lifelong sports collectibles enthusiast, hobbyist, uh, who started collecting cards and and other collectibles when he was a 12-year-old kid in, in South New Jersey. He now runs what is the largest independent auction house for sports collectibles and trading cards uh, and a house that uh, so far this year has broken you know, a new record for sales just about every month. He's been doing this for some time, correct? Yeah, he started Golden Auctions in 2012. He saw coming out of the the global recession in 07 and 08 that there was an interest in investing in alternative assets and that trading cards would be one of those places that that all these people with excess cash would put their money. But the business has really taken off over the last 12 to 18 months. So much so that they had a recent auction, right? And it crashed the site. Is that right? Yeah, there has been... He works with this company called Mm SimpleAuctions.com. And because Golden... Golden is such kind of a shameless self-promoter and has attracted so much attention. There are hackers that frequently have attacked the the site during his auctions. Let's bring in Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, who joins us now on the access line from Brooklyn. Joel, why do you think that 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 this type of asset right now, I mean, look, Lucas said it's it's been having a moment over the last 12 years. But why over the last year, over the last 16 months, has it really been having a moment? I, I think people are craving um, assets that are are slightly alternative, right? And I think like even things like meme stocks sort of have shown that. Um, so as we did in that cover story um, uh, just a couple months ago about sneakers being yet another place, if, right. you, if you can flip something and make a buck, uh, have fun doing it, uh, it, I think all of that stuff suddenly starts to to resonate in newfound ways when you know many people have <laughs> had too much time on their hands. Um, you know, the question I have for you, Lucas, is um, how much are all these baseball cards from my childhood worth, though? <laughs> you know, it depends on what kind of condition they're in. Are, if, are they? Have you had them graded? Are they a PSA eight or above? No, I, I have not had them graded, um, I, and I think there's um, it's a lot of like maybe Don Mattingly 1987 tops cards. <laughs> okay, so a grade ten uh, is in the example in your piece from Michael Jordan, uh, Michael uh, the Michael Jordan example. A grade ten is four hundred and eighty thousand dollars versus a grade eight that would be just eleven thousand six hundred to to twelve thousand dollars. Not to mention uh, if you go all the way down to uh, a grade one, which is poor condition. Uh, $2,500 to $3,000, Lucas. Yeah, there's a huge range in prices, uh, you know, all of which is determined by these third-party grading companies. PSA is sort of the, the number one, but there's also Beckett. There's others. They have been so overwhelmed by demand this year because of people probably like Joel trying to get their cards graded <laughs> that they stopped grading new cards for a, a period. PSA has sworn to me that they're hoping by July to be back up and running as fully. 
Hey, listen, I want to understand how this story came to be. So, Jill, what was the pitch or how did like, how did it come? Especially a story like this with a character like this. As with so many things, it starts with <laughs> Lucas and I talking about something else. And then he, and then he would he emailed me uh, a little bit later and he goes, by the way, what are you doing about trading cards? And I was like, nothing. Tell me more. Tell me everything. And he was like, well, there's this character that, that we should profile. And, and, and thus began um, his reporting. Um, uh, so, so Lucas, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, the, there's the cards that I grew up with and then, which are, let's just be honest, worth nothing. And then there are the cards that, um, are, are truly collectibles and they, they, I think they, you might even, they might even push the envelope of like what a card means. Right. So talk to us about where the market is, has gone on that front. Yeah. One of the things that happened, uh, a long time ago, there used to be people would manufacture tons of different cards. And now all the card manufacturers have gotten a lot smarter about it. And so there are going to be just kind of generic rookie cards, which can be really valuable. But they also make kind of one-off cards or limited sets of 10. Like there was this Luka Doncic card that, that sold earlier this year for more than $4 million. And it's because it's one of one. And he's this guy who everybody thinks is going to be you know, the next LeBron, the next Michael Jordan. So there's been a lot of, a lot of efforts to restrict supply and create special editions to kind of create scarcity because that's like any market it booms based on scarcity there's also the added wrinkle sort of where do nfts fit into this because they're kind of like trading cards but they're not like trading cards and even ken golden has started to sell them in his auctions none of them have generated as much money as the, the top of the top of the line trading cards but they still go for tens of thousands of dollars Check out that full conversation. Yes, there is more with Bloomberg News Entertainment reporter Lucas Shaw and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber that can all be found on our podcast feed at Bloomberg.com or on Apple. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. So where were you in 1984? There's a new book out that writes about that summer and the 90 days in 1984 that changed sports and culture forever. We'll have more on the glory days. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 1984. Well, our next guest was 13 years old at the time. He was living in his hometown of Bloomington, Indiana. And something remarkable was happening unbeknownst to everyone. That would contribute to really making that summer and that year one for the record books when it came to sports and culture. Writing about it all, John Wertheim, he's executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated, contributing correspondent for CBS 60 Minutes. His new book, Just Out, Glory Days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 Days that changed sports and culture forever. John takes us back to that year. I was a young kid then, but the, <laughs> uh, the tryouts for the 1984 Olympics team were held in my small town in Indiana. And uh, I, I wrote a piece about it and sort of developed this piece in, into the book. And it sort of struck me that, um, you know, I, I used Michael Jordan as sort of the, the, the symbolic figure who at the beginning of the summer was this sort of sheepish college kid whose coach was making him go to the NBA. Michael Jordan would rather have stayed in college, and uh, by the end of the summer, Michael Jordan was a millionaire many times over. He had an Olympic medal. He had a signature shoe, and it struck me that that pretty much mirrored the the arc of sports that summer, that it started in one place, and in a very short amount of time, it sort of had, had blossomed into the, the big business, uh, you know, big media property that, that it is uh, today, that a lot, a lot happened in that summer, and a lot happened 
in a very short amount of time. Well, we've had some fun talking about it in the newsroom. Go through some of the things because they're things that we in the sports world, to some extent, right, John, take for granted today. But as you said, that summer was pivotal for something like an ESPN. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of this was just, you know, the Michael Jordan. Uh, I mean, one, one of my favorites, the NBA got a new commissioner, a guy named David Stern, mm-hmm. this lawyer who made people who worked with him miserable and had all sorts of ideas about media and globalization. So Michael, so David Stern is on the job for uh, you know a few months, and he gets his first NBA final, and it's magic in the Lakers against Larry Bird and the Celtics. So he gets this dream NBA finals. It goes seven games. It's on network TV, which wasn't always a given uh, for the NBA. And then a few days later, he presides over his first draft when Michael Jordan gets selected. So that's a pretty good week for uh, for David Stern. And then you, you just sort of go down the list, and it's, you know, Wayne Gretzky won his first Stanley Cup, and there was an Olympics that was profitable, and, you know, Donald Trump entered the scene through sports buying a football team. But So, so you had all these coincidences. But I think what, what really became clear to me when I did the reporting mm-hmm. is two things. A, a, this was the summer. I mean, you mentioned ESPN. This was the summer of cable. Mm-hmm. And cable really turned a corner, whether it was MTV or whether it was CNN or whether it was ESPN was sold to ABC that summer. And smart people at ESPN realized, wait a second, we shouldn't be paying the cable systems to get on their offering of channels. They should be paying us a subscriber <laughs> fee. And the cable, uh, you know, it was a game of chicken. And basically um, ESPN wasn't the one that blinked. And so the subscriber fee that started out as a few pennies and would then grow to about $7 a month. You know, that's really the secret sauce behind ESPN's success. They, they sell their 30-second commercial blocks, but they make most of their money from these subscriber fees. And the other thing that happened that summer, and again, I think Michael Jordan was mm-hmm. kind of the exemplar, a- athletes recognized their platform and their value. And it wasn't really political. You know, this was sort of Reagan 80s. This was not about activism and then social and political activism, but athletes realized wait a second, I shouldn't be doing that for free. Or wait, wait a second, if Nike wants to give me a shoe, they should be paying me too. And mm-hmm. I think that Michael Jordan doesn't get enough credit for that. He's not a political activist. He's not, you know, Muhammad Ali or Bill Russell or Colin Kaepernick. But what he did to empower athletes starting in that summer of 1984 I I think he doesn't get enough credit for that. Well, there's a line in your introduction. You said most of Bloomington looked at Michael Jordan somewhat indifferently in the summer of 1984 as he ordered a smoothie at the chocolate mousse ice cream joint or lost 18 holes of putt-putt only to shoot the winner a scalding stare and demand an immediate rematch. But it's just interesting that, right, someone incredibly unknown and then almost in the snap of a fingers was a game changer, a lasting one in terms of sports overall, certainly, you know, when it comes to basketball, but even more broadly. Yeah. I mean, uh, Michael Jordan was running around my hometown and it wasn't a big deal. He didn't have an entourage. He didn't have security. He didn't have an agent. Some of that is cute and nostalgic and, oh, sports were so much more pure back Mm -hmm. then. But part of that is athletes were really undervalued. And the notion that Michael Jordan was sort of at the mercy of of these coaches and, and didn't have an entourage, I, I think, says something in itself. You talk about David Stern kind of projecting kind of where things were going and forecasting where things were going. You also talk about, and we, you know, today take technology for granted in everything we do, but you go back to the LA Olympics again, 1984. I had family members who went there, and um, technology was really having its impact on the Olympics as well, the 1984 Olympics. Yeah, I mean, 1984 also was, was the year uh, that you had this, this cube-like, it looked like a food processor, and it was a computer, and they called it the Mac, and everyone uh, 
sort of tried to figure out if, if computers finally were, were here to stay. Um, they, you know, the personal computer was something I only use at the office. So it was, it was sort of the, the summer of Mac, but also you're right at the 84 Olympics, they really sort of redefined what it meant to be an Olympic sponsor. And P Peter Ubroth ran this very successful Olympics. And one thing he did, he had these, these technology firms, so it was both, uh, both AT&T and IBM. And they had something called the EMS, the electronic messaging service. And they told the athletes, you don't need to pick up a phone. You could send a message to someone electronically. If you put in your password and get on one of our, you know, get, get on one of our monitors, get on one of our computer terminals, you can send messages electronically. And very few athletes took advantage of it. But, you know, you, you look back and it was one of the very first email networks. And uh, sort of, um, they, they basically demoed it at the 1984 Olympics. Motorola distributing pagers, like that takes yeah. us back, right? Hey, listen, <laughs> um, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about tennis. I know it's something you write so eloquently about, you are passionate about. The U.S. Open is coming up. Uh, what are your expectations? It's going to be back? Will? Um, <laughs> or will it? Not with it? No, I think so. I mean, honestly, I, I think so. I mean, okay. if they're... If they're you know, we're packing Madison Square Garden. I think we'll be okay for an outdoor tennis event. I mean, I think, I think we talked about this last year. I mean, the the interesting part of this is, you know, part of it is the fan experience. Mm -hmm. and again, I mean, I think, uh, I think especially since we're outdoors, we'll be okay. I think the really interesting thing is going to be are companies ready to use the U.S. Open for for hospitality, which is a huge source of revenue and it's a huge part of the U.S. Open experience for a lot of firms. Are we at a point where you know, the fans will be in the stands and the fans will be on the grounds, but are we at a point where these companies that historically have rented these suites and used the tennis as entertainment, are they going to be ready to take clients back to suites? Is, is it appropriate, mm -hmm. uh, both health standards and also sort of optics? And, you know, I, I, I hope the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes, but I just got back from the French Open. Right. And there was very little hospitality. Really? Part of that was yeah. protocol. You know, part of that was, was Western Europe, uh, they, they are not where we are in terms of getting out of this thing. Right. But I also think some firms said, you know what, I'm not sure it's a great look after what we've been through the last 16 months. I'm not sure it's a great look to have everybody, you know, eating canapes and drinking champagne in this uh, field suite. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think I think that's the question. I mean, the U.S. Open, it, it'll happen. It won't be like last year. Yeah. We'll all get to go as fans if we want to. But I think it'll be interesting to see how many of these suites get sold. Naomi Osaka, she withdrew from the French Open, uh, and she talked about reasons related to mental health. You know, you've covered the sport. You've covered a lot of athletes. She's not the first one, you know, to talk about either depression or anxiety. Um, there's a lot of stress and pressure on these athletes. And she even talked about, you know, how hard it is to, to speak to the media. It makes her nervous. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I think... Um, you, know, you, you, you say she's not the first, and you're, and you're right. I do think it was sort of significant that an athlete at the peak of her powers, mm -hmm. I mean, she's highest paid female athlete. She's won the last two majors she entered. I mean, she's really sort of, uh, this is peak Naomi point. And for her to sort of have this sort of revelation at this stage, I thought was, I thought it was courageous. I also thought it was sort of culturally fascinating. I mean, this is not the way um, athletes behaved or characterized their conditions. 20 years ago when I started covering sports. I, I do think if you're in tennis, you, you knew that she's had these challenges. She's talked mm -hmm. about it. She's, she's pretty upfront about it. I, I thought it was really at, at best tone deaf and at worst something, uh, you know, more, you know, malicious even that 
the tournaments responded the way they did. This was not about an athlete that was trying to pay her way out of something that was inconvenient. This was not about an athlete who was grandstanding or being self-righteous. This wasn't, you know, defiance. Mm. This was a, this was a, a broken, this was a broken human being. Right. And I, I thought the, um, you know, I mean, she probably could have handled this better, but I think really more of the blame rests on the adults who were not very, um, sensitive or empathetic yeah. or read the room particularly well and sort of cast her as a, you know, this, this rebellious troublemaker. And that wasn't what it was at all. John Wertheim, he's executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated, contributing correspondent for 60 Minutes. And his new book, it's called Glory Days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Master for Tim Stanovic and the whole team. Be sure to tune in to our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you download your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week is also available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. And you can also catch Tim on Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend, everybody. This is Bloomberg.